Our scripture reading will come once again from the book of Hebrews in the second chapter. You'll remember last Lord's Day we considered many things about verse 9, and tonight we come to verse 10. And once again for context, and also I hope to bring it into our memory, we'll begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 10. And if God has used these many readings of the same portion of scripture so that we don't forget it, praise the Lord that he does that for us. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10 from where our text comes this evening. This is the infallible word of God. Give ear to it. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man? that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man, that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do thank you for your precious word that you've given to us. And as we read this and look forward to contemplating the great things, the great mysteries that you have revealed about yourself in your word, we also want to remember with thanksgiving two that are among us tonight. We thank you for Tony, who is with us and been with us these last three weeks. We ask, Lord, that as he departs from us, that he might depart with much joy, having refreshed us by his presence, and God willing, us refreshed him with ours. We ask that you would bring him safely back to California and on that long drive, and may your spirit go with him. We also thank you that Tori is among us tonight. We ask that you would please Help him as he hears your word to put all his trust in Christ Jesus. Deliver him from every sin and affliction that might come upon him. Provide for his work, for himself, the work that he needs. And we ask, Lord, that you would, in time to come, bring him as a member into this church or another Bible-believing church, and that he might always be praising your name. And now, O Lord, we ask that you would cause your word that has come to us tonight in the speaking. May it come to us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless us as we hear. Cause my words and the meditation of our hearts to be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. 
O Lord, our God, our strength, and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Shortly after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when you remember those crowds lined the streets, putting those palm branches before him, and crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, Jesus was standing outside of the city looking at it. And as he stood there, we read in Luke 19 that he wept. He wept over Jerusalem because of the many souls that were there. And as Jesus said, they did not know the peace that came to them, speaking of himself, for he is the very Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the Redeemer. And yet, while many saw him, many even praised him. How few put their trust in the Lord Jesus. We can think maybe in a similar way of Paul's expression in the latter chapters of Romans, in chapter 9 and 10 and 11, as he spoke of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. And he even cries out at one point, if it were possible, and it wasn't, but if it were possible, I myself would be accursed, that my countrymen, the Jews, would be brought into the kingdom of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is your thought concerning the souls of so many that are tonight outside of the Lord? We're living or we're sitting today in DeKalb County, a county of almost 800,000 souls. We're in a metro area that, as we heard at the joint service a couple weeks ago, has more than 6 million people that are living in its borders. We're in a state with over 10 million souls, and all of these numbers in the county, city, and state are expected to grow by some 40% over the coming decades. What are your thoughts concerning all these souls tonight? And as you think about that, I would like you to ask yourself this question. Where are you in relation to the sons and children of God? Tonight, God calls us in this first half of verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2 to behold his will in bringing many sons to glory through Jesus Christ, who tasted death for every child. If you are taking notes and would like a heading, you can consider our first heading in this way. The many taught in Scripture. Many taught in Scripture. Verse 9, you'll remember, came to us after an objection was raised. Because as all these things were spoken of about the man whom would be crowned with glory and honor, there was an objection that the writer even brings out himself, anticipating it. But we don't see all things put under him. And you remember that the writer then answers, ah, that's true. We don't yet see all things, but we see Jesus. And all things are even now put under him. And in fact, Jesus, this Jesus, who was crowned with glory and honor, he is above all else. He is over all. His glory is above the heavens. His righteousness higher than the clouds. He's the one that tasted death for everyone. As our perfect mediator, he comes between God and sinful man and makes an atonement, makes even the, the sacrifice of his own blood that sinners like us might enter into the very presence of God as we've done tonight and are doing tonight in worship. 
This is that Jesus who's been spoken to us and given to us and revealed to us by God. Well, verse 10 is connected, and it makes it very clear in, these, in this first word. For something is following that verse. Something else is going to be added to it. It seems that the writer of Hebrews is anticipating a question. Because you remember, as we talked last week about Jesus tasting death for everyone, we asked why he would do it, and we saw the answer that it was because of the grace of God. That God's grace was shown in Jesus Christ and never shown greater than in sending his own son to die for sinners, all according to the grace of God. Well, the question is, why would God show his grace in the death of his son? And verse 10 gives us the answer. And it gives us the answer in this way. For it was fitting for him. Think about these words. Why would God show his grace in the death of his son who died for the sins of all his people? Because it was fitting for the father. What an answer that he gives. He's telling us that this death of his son is altogether according to his goodness. We might even say according to the very nature of God himself. It was fitting for him to bring many sons to glory through his own son's death who tasted death for everyone. It's fitting to his eternal decree and will. Consider with me a few very well-known passages of Scripture that would say just the same thing and expound this for us. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. We read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I'll go on to verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why would he adopt us as sons? This is the good pleasure of his will. It was fitting for God. It was altogether according to the goodwill and purposes of God. Well, what about Romans 8 and that golden chain that we considered in Sunday school not long ago? Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's according to the foreknowledge and will of God to bring many sons to glory through the death of his own son. It is fitting for him. It's according to the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why God brings many sons to glory. That's why his own Son suffered and tasted death for everyone, because it was fitting for God. The means that God uses to bring these many sons to glory is even the appointment of a captain of their salvation one who is exalted, or maybe we would say perfected, in suffering. 
And God willing, next time we will consider more those words of Jesus, that he is the captain of our salvation. But this evening, I'd like us to consider more these words here that are given almost in passing, though we know that there is nothing in the scripture given for passing. But they're almost a secondary thought or parentheses. But I want us to think about them, that God brings many sons to glory. I think perhaps there are misunderstandings concerning the children of God and the number of the elect, the number of those children. And I want us to consider something of those misunderstandings tonight. Because as we think about the number of the elect or the number of the children, the sons and daughters that God is bringing to glory, sometimes we're prone to think only or in a limited sense or in an incomplete sense about those many portions in Scripture that speak about few. And there are many places that speak about God's people as being few. But I want us to think about those portions of Scripture correctly tonight. And Hebrews 2.10 helps us to do just that. Think about Matthew 22 and verse 14, where Jesus said, Many are called, but few are chosen. Or Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and 13 and verse 14, Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Or in Romans 9, verse 27, which itself is quoting Isaiah 10, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Now, some conclude from these texts that the number is small. And they would rightly conclude from these texts that there is a great warning to those that hear the gospel that many are going to be called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, like many, even everyone that's here tonight, is called to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But few are chosen. That there are two paths. One is very broad, one is very narrow. Many find the broad path, and its end is destruction. Few find that narrow path, but its end is life, everlasting But sometimes when we think of that, we think that the number of God's elect might be very small. But here, God says that he doesn't bring few sons to glory. He brings many sons to glory. So how are we to understand these verses that we just read from around the scripture in light of what's said in in Hebrews chapter 2? Well, we need to think about what the Lord is comparing those few and those many to in those other passages If we are to think about all people that ever lived and compare the number of the children of God to them, it is but a remnant. It is very few. How many billions of people are alive today? Maybe 7 billion or 8 billion people alive right now. How many billions of people have been alive before but are no longer alive now? It may be in excess of tens of billions of people. Compared to that number, The number of the children of God is few. But what the Lord is teaching us tonight from Hebrews is not just to look at that and say, well, compared to 10 billion, the remnant is very small. God is calling us to look at the number on its own. And if we consider the number on its own, the number of the children of God gathered all together, it's a number that no one but Jesus can count. It's a great number. Let me evidence that to us from the scripture, Revelation chapter 5. If you would turn there, Revelation chapter 5, 11 and 12, where John, in that glorious vision, sees this. 
Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. There are millions. Now, someone might say, oh, but maybe he's speaking of the angels there. Is that really the number of the sons of God? Well, it is, it is, and let's see that even further by Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, it gets even clearer who this multitude is. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the Lord, or the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. A number which no one can number. Many sons are being brought to glory. That's how we're to understand this text. That's how we're to understand the number of the elect. Compared to the whole population of the world ever, a remnant. Compared to itself, a great number. What comes into your mind when you think of a millionaire? Do you think of somebody wealthy? Do you think they have a lot of money? I tend to think they do. And I, even with inflation, I think most people would still consider a millionaire to have a lot of money. But what is a millionaire compared to the Saudi royal family? They measure their money by the billions and the tens of billions. That's something of the picture that's here. In comparison to the whole population, the number of God's children is but a remnant, but a fraction. Even within the visible church of God, there were ten virgins, and only five were wise, and five were foolish. But compared to itself, standing alone, That number that stands before the throne of God, it is a number which no one can number but God himself. A great multitude. And where are they? They're standing in glory. For God brings his sons to glory. And ladies, don't be concerned here by sons. This means sons and daughters. It's used like brethren is going to be used in a couple verses later. This is sons and daughters, the children of the Most High God, brought to glory. What is glory? Have you thought about that word? That you, a child of God, would be brought to glory. And I confess that the words that I can come up with for glory are too inadequate compared to what God means here. For God is himself the God of glory. He's the glorious God. He is glory in and of himself. When Moses came before his glory, his face shone. When the soldiers came out against the glory of Jesus in the garden, they fell down. When Jesus hung on the cross, the earth went black as night. When we are in heaven, in glory, there will be no sun, because the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be the light. Maybe there's no better way than thinking of the light of Jesus Christ to think of the glory of God. It's but a mere taste of the fullness of his glory, which no mind can understand or fully comprehend. And Jesus said, I'm bringing many sons to glory, that we're going to participate in something of the glory of God. 
First John brings that out after that great passage. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. What manner of love has God bestowed upon us? What is that manner of love? Well, right after he tells us. Now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to have some sense and expression and sharing in that glory. Not that we become deity, no, in no way. But we're going to share in the glory of God. In fact, those that he justifies, he also glorifies. Ultimately, that glory is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. When this mortal body that if the Lord delays his return will go into the ground, the soul will go up into heaven, At that great day that Jesus returns, the day of judgment will also be, for God's people, the day of glory. Body and soul will be reunited, not in a mortal body, but in immortal. Not in a corruptible body, but in an incorruptible body. Not beholding with mere eyes of faith, as great as that is, but beholding with eyes of flesh the very splendor and glory and radiance of God himself in the face and person of Jesus Christ. That's where he's bringing us, to glory. And the number that he's bringing is many, many sons. So there's the first misunderstanding that we look at these passages of the few and think that in some way the number is very small. And God would call us to look outside that number and look at the number by itself and see that it's many. But there's another, there is another another misconception and oftentimes we can be discouraged by the numbers that we see. And in discouragements, it's not uncommon for us to fall back on great doctrines, as we ought to do. We ought to fall back on the great doctrines and promises of God, but we can sometimes fall back on the, the doctrines of God and use them, use them almost in a sense of complacency around the present condition. And so sometimes as we look out and see the church and see it weak, see pews that are empty, see whole sections that have no people in them, we might think, well, God just saves a few. We think God is sovereign. When he desires to bring people in, he will. And we'll reference things like Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And we ought not to presume if there's little conversion, that's God's work. And when he wants there to be many people, he'll do it again. And we confess that God is sovereign, that God does build his church, that God is the one that does all these things, and man is but an instrument. But even as we heard this morning, as our pastor faithfully preached, that as God builds his church, God uses means to do it. God uses prayer as a means of his grace to build up the church, to ask great things of God that we need for our bodies and souls. We ought not to think about the number of God's elect, few or many, and sit back and think, well, God is sovereign. When he wants to bring them in, he will. But God uses means, and he wants us to be about our Father's business. And we ought not to sit back and think that there is nothing else that God would have us to do. God calls us, in his word, to invite, to gather, to compel the world to come to himself. I want you to turn to a longer portion of Scripture, Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read nine verses from there. Luke chapter 14, where the Lord gives this picture of the Great Supper. And what takes place in this is 
I think, very applicable to our text from Hebrews tonight. Now, when, all, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he, that's Jesus, said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Did the servants of God sit back and say, God is sovereign? They said, No, they're not coming. Oh, it is true, God is sovereign. And God has appointed means to fill his house. He said, Go out to the highways and the lanes of the city. Go out to the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house might be filled. I've been to several General Assemblies, and one of the things that we do at the General Assembly is we hear a report from the statistician who tells us what the Lord has done in the Orthodox Presbyterian churches over the last year. And thanks be to God that the number grows, but the number often grows by this amount, 1%, 2%, 2 2.9%. On a really Good year, 3 to 4%. And often, as we should, thank God for all things. We do thank God for that growth. Much of it comes from children being born into the church. Much of it comes from those Christians disgruntled from other denominations. Very few comes from new conversion. Very little. And we see small percentages for which we thank God. But what ought we to be praying for God as we see these things? Shouldn't we be praying that more would come in? The parable of the sower. The sower went forth to sow, and some of it fell on good ground. And what kind of return did the seed on the good ground come back with? Was it 2%? Or was it 40, 60, 100 times what was sown? That's what we ought to be praying for. We ought to pray that even as we thank God for what he's given in this time of a very small harvest, that he would give a very great harvest to his church. Why and on what basis can we ask that? Because God has seen it to be fitting that many sons would be brought to glory. And we ought to pray that those many sons would be brought to glory. Archibald Brown, I was sharing with some of you today, he was the successor to Charles Spurgeon at the Tabernacle Church in London after after Spurgeon died. And it's said of Archibald Brown that as he was a young man after he was converted, he started evangelizing very quickly. And at one time he was at a gathering, there were supposed to be some missionaries speaking to Uh, speaking to a group at the church he was going to. It was a very large church. It was a weekday, and only 20 people came out to hear the missionaries speak. And I don't know where these missionaries were from, but the missionaries pulled out for their presentation, the Pilgrim's Progress. 
And they started reading from the Pilgrim's Progress, and Archibald Brown, who was a fan of the Pilgrim's Progress, interrupted them. And he said, I'm a young man, and I love the Pilgrim's Progress, but this is a service where the Word of God is to be preached. Where is the preaching of the Word? And the missionary said to him, if you think that way, that's fine, you preach. Well, Archibald Brown had never preached in a church before, and there were only 20 people there. And he said, it's not right that there's only 20 people gathered to hear the Word of God. We're going to delay this service. And he went out into the streets of London, and he went into the bars, and he went into the shops that were nearby, and he gathered 40 more who came. And there Archibald Brown preached his first sermon to an audience of 60, 40 of whom had not been in the church prior. What are we expecting as we come to church? What are we expecting as we live our Christian lives? What are we expecting as we hear the promises of God concerning the number of his children? Do we expect God to do very little things? Maybe that's why we sometimes see so little happen. Or do we expect God to do great things, even as he has promised great things to us in his word? Well, that brings us to our second heading, and that is the many confirmed in Scripture. Many confirmed in Scripture. I want us to think of this under three subheadings. The many confirmed in a promise, the many confirmed in the blood, and the many confirmed in our text. The many confirmed in a promise. We've read the whole chapter of Genesis 15. What was the promise of God to Abram? He took him outside, and there were no streetlights blocking his view of the sky. And he told him to look up into the sky. And he said, do you see the stars, Abram? If you can count the stars, then you can count the children of God. You can count the children of promise. Later on in in Genesis, he would take them and say, consider the stars. If you can count them, you can count the children. What about the sand of the seashore? If you can count the number of, of kernels or pebbles of sand on the seashore, you can count the number of the children of God. And then God did something else. To prove this point and to bring it home, he takes Abram and changes his name. Nobody here talks about Abram in that way. We talk about Abraham. Because God changed his name for this reason. Because Abram was not going to be the father of one nation. He was going to be the father of many nations. Right there in his name, we know, we can see that God is not talking about a bloodline. That would be one nation. His name is changed that we would know even as Galatians 3 brings out that Abraham is the father of many children by faith. That if you, if you brother, if you sister, Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a child of Abraham and a child of God. His name is Abraham because he will be the father of many nations and a great people by faith. The promise to bring many sons to glory is in Genesis. And it's repeated for us here in Hebrews chapter 2. The promise is, or the, the many are confirmed with the promise But the many are also confirmed in the blood. What do we think concerning the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here is the King of glory, the one who had all riches and who became poor, that the poorest of men and women, boys and girls, us who are gathered here tonight, that we who are poor and wretched might become rich. And he went to the cross those 2,000 years ago, and he was nailed there, and his blood was dripping from his head, 
from his hands, from his feet. And eventually, after his, he died, blood even was dripping out of his side. For what was his blood shed? For a very small number of people? Or to bring many sons by his blood to glory? It is a strange thing to think about the blood of Christ being shed for a very small number. We ought not to think that way. But it is shed for a great number that no one can number that are gathered around the throne of God. Do you remember as Pastor Zeki preached from that day of Pentecost today, do you remember what happened, or shortly after Pentecost, do you remember what happened from that sermon? 3,000 souls came to Christ. Later on in Jerusalem, 4,000 souls would come to Christ. Later on, in the lifetime of these apostles, the name of Jesus and the profession of his name was spreading throughout the Roman Empire into Asia, into northern Africa. All in the time of the apostles, many sons were coming to glory. So much so that those that made their living off of idols, like Diana of the Ephesians, they were losing their living. Too many people were being converted. Not enough were paying money for idols. So they were told by some, these Christians, they're turning the world upside down. That didn't happen because a few sons were brought to glory. That happened because many sons were brought to glory. And many sons were brought to glory because God shed his blood for many children. Many children. The blood of Christ testifies to this very thing, the testimony of Scripture, that there are many children that Christ has saved. And this is confirmed in our text. Notice how Notice how in the text I said it's, it's almost like we're passing over this, these words about bringing many sons to glory. And I said we don't pass over this thing. But notice how it's not argued. There's many things in Hebrews that are argued. The Apostle Paul is, if you know anything about his writings, you know that he's constantly laying down arguments, objections, statements, confirmations of theology under the inspiration of the Word of God. There is no argument that he makes here for bringing many sons to glory. It's assumed that the reader knows that this is exactly what Jesus Christ came for. That Jesus Christ came not for just a handful, but he came to bring many sons to glory. Yes, it is true. It is few compared to the whole, but compared to itself, it is many. What is the church doing with such a promise? And I don't mean Redeemer OPC, though we should always hear the Word of God and examine ourselves as individuals and as a church. But what is the church doing? And I found this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones written over, over 50 years ago, at least, very pointed to today's context. Lloyd-Jones said this, The whole tragedy today is that the Christian church is moving ponderously, slowly, heavily, while the world is in the grip of the devil. She is setting up committees to investigate the problems and commissions to examine various situations. She is calling for reports, interim and final, to be produced in a year or perhaps several years, which will then be considered. And she is doing this while the world is on fire, people are going to hell, and the devil is rampant everywhere. Does this sound something like our present church environment? Does this sound something like we have become too at ease over our present context? 
Can we have a sinful satisfaction with the present state of the church? And what do I mean by that? Not that we doubt God, but can we be satisfied with the number and not seek those many sons to come to glory? Are we too at ease in this day of adversity? Have you heard people say things like this? Oh, God hasn't given us a Spurgeon. God hasn't given us a Whitfield. God hasn't given us even a Wesley. We shouldn't expect those great conversions to happen. Or they'll say, quoting Scripture, don't despise the day of small things. They'll even say, don't say revival, it's misused too often. Brothers and sisters, let us never despise the day of small things. But ought we not to desire the day of great things? Ought we not to desire the work of the Lord to go forth with power like it has in the past? It is fitting for God to bring many sons to glory. Are many sons coming to glory? Are many children being converted today? It's fitting for God. We ought to ask for it. We ought to cry out that the Lord would rend the heavens again, part them, send down his showers of blessing, that there would not be room enough to receive the many sons that are coming to glory. Jesus has told us as much. The harvest, it's plentiful. It's there. Here's the problem. Not the sovereignty of God. It's the laborers are too few. I wonder if in our present day that we have seen something of the, the majesty of the church of Christ that he's purchased with his blood and it's, it's advanced on and we've seen these great days of the kingdom's advancement. There was that monk in Germany and God took him to start a revival in Germany so that those that were bowing down and worshiping relics were in the end burning them. He started a revival throughout Europe, and as it, as it started to fade, he raised up the Puritans and other reformers to carry it on. And we've seen great days in history of the Lord at work when kings and people, cities and towns were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And now we look back at those days, and we talk with wonder and awe at the work of God in those days. But have we stopped praying for it to happen in our day? Don't we ask and even sing that the Lord would cause a thousand souls to be his own? Isn't that what we ask the Lord? Are we meaning it when we ask him? The psalmist asked that the Lord would revive us again. Do we desire to be revived again? Revival, remember, begins in the heart of individual Christians. If you study some of the history of revivals, which we don't have time to go through tonight, though I very much would desire to do that, if you study the history of revivals, it often starts with one or just a few people, often not even the preacher or an elder or a deacon, but maybe a widow in a church somewhere praying for God to work by his spirit in the people of her community. And God causing some minister who's been preaching faithfully but not seeing much fruit for many years, God causing that minister to be, in a way, if we want to use this term, filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of God, and is preaching to have great effect, and those that would pass by the church and laugh are coming into the church and being converted. And that revival taking place and spreading from some small town to great cities, that's the history of revival. Are we praying for that? Do we desire to see it again? And a great reformed revival where the biblical truths are being preached faithfully, not for effect or emotional impact, but that sinners would come to glory through the blood of Christ. What ought we to do in light of the context of this text where God has told us many sons are being brought to glory? 
we must preach and receive the word with power, prayer, and expectation. Preach and receive the word with power, prayer, and expectation. So this is not just to the preacher. This is not just to the elder and the teacher and the deacon. This is to those that hear the word as well. We need to preach and receive it with power, prayer, and expectation. What great news the Lord gives in his word. How does it come to us? Do we read the scripture and think these are very small, simple things? From the very opening verses in the scripture, we see power. The power of God. He speaks and the whole world comes into being. The power of God. He has all power to save to the uttermost. He takes dead people and gives them life. And he says when Christians see non-Christians converted, it's like we're seeing with our very own eyes life for the dead. Read Romans chapter 11 on that. But why won't they come in? Why aren't there many in the pews tonight like they, there once were? Charles Spurgeon spoke of his church as having a perpetual revival. Hundreds coming to faith in Christ every year. Why don't we see that happening in our day? Well, one may be we're not praying for it. And so as we see and receive the word with power, we need to pray that God would do great things. But is it possible that people outside the church, they look in and they don't see much difference between the world and the church? Do they look in and they, they see the scripture and they read it and, and they see these things and they, Christians aren't doing that? I've used the example in Sunday school. I'll give it again tonight. Elon Musk being interviewed by the Christians on the Babylon Bee. And he asked them, why are you Christians interviewing me on the Lord's Day? And they laughed. Is that why the churches aren't fooled today? Because the Christians that believe in the holy, righteous commandments of God aren't keeping them. Is it possible that the gospel is being preached without power? Not telling people that they should expect an entirely new life. Because when Christ converts someone, he doesn't convert a little piece of them. He doesn't convert their heart. He converts the whole person, body and soul converted. All things that were old, they become new. The one that was dead, he becomes alive. The one that couldn't stop drinking the alcohol to get drunk. The one that couldn't stop the drugs, God by his power has done it. The one that was addicted to pornography, the Lord by his power conquers that. That's what the Lord does. That's what he says. He breaks the power of reigning sin. We sing it. Do we believe it? Is the gospel being preached with power? Is it being preached with prayer? Because we can preach the gospel and somehow maybe preach a better sermon than Paul or John ever did, and if the Spirit of God isn't amongst us, it will fall completely flat and do nothing. And the weakest sermon, the the stammering, stuttering minister who can barely get sentence out in a straight line, if the Spirit of God is with him, God can save a thousand souls through it. That's what God does. We must preach the gospel with power and prayer for the Spirit to use his glorious gospel to save many. Is it possible that there are few sons coming to glory in our present day because we give many facts about the Scripture and give very few imperatives? We give very few commands because we want people to come into our church, so we don't want to make it too hard. So we're careful not to offend, and so we don't give the whole counsel of God. Is that possible? Does that happen? Certainly there's temptation to that. 
Is the gospel called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the great commandment for the world to hear tonight? Or is it a mere suggestion? Will not men and women, boys and girls, be judged if they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, to do it. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the Son of God. We ought to go forth and tell people, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not ask them, not to get them to pray a sinner's prayer, though they should certainly pray, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their whole life for all eternity depends on that. We ought to proclaim the gospel with its imperatives. And is it possible that the kingdom of God and the many sons that God has promised are very few in our present time because the glory of the kingdom is being hidden within our walls. Do people know we're a Christian when we leave here and go to work tomorrow? Do they know it? Do they know what this church preaches? Do they know what it is to hear the glory of Christians singing like we've heard this morning and this evening? Do they know what it is to hear the power of God who saves to the uttermost? Or are they saying because they've never heard, oh, God is such an angry, hateful God. He doesn't want to save people. Maybe it's time once again that we go outside our walls and that we go into the streets and the highways and the byways and we compel people to come in. Maybe it's time like Whitfield did before and as Spurgeon did very often and as Lloyd-Jones, so people from every spectrum of the evangelical world would do in their time, they went and had worship services outside. What a field we have up front. How many people pass by this church during a worship service and how few have ever pulled in to come in and see it? Maybe it's time that the church goes outside where Jesus often had some of his greatest sermons And many conversions that all people might hear and turn to Christ and live. We must preach and receive the word of God with power, with prayer, and with expectation. What is the expectation? We must expect God to convert sinners through his word. We must expect God to sanctify the saints through his word. If we don't expect these things, why should we ever see them happen? God has not ordained his church for nothing by his power and spirit to happen. God has ordained it for us to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. God has ordained it, he's willed it, it's fitting for him that many sons would come to glory through the preaching of his gospel. We must expect God to convert. There was a young man who was um, a preacher, a street preacher in the days of Spurgeon, and he went to Spurgeon, he said, I'm very discouraged Because I've been preaching, I've had large crowds, and I haven't seen anyone come to faith in Christ. And Spurgeon said, do you expect conversion when you go out? Do you pray for it? And the young man said, no, I don't want to presume on God. And Spurgeon said, that's why you're not seeing any conversion. You don't expect it. Why would God give you that? We ought to be expecting conversions. In this church, we should not be hoping for merely one person to be baptized as an adult, though... We ought to rejoice when one person is baptized as an adult. All the angels in heaven do it. We ought to be praying for God to convert many. That's what the power of the gospel is all about. Think about the news that is revealed to us in the word. Life for the dead. Eternal life for those that are eternally damned. That's where every sinner is. That's their standing before God. Eternally damned for their sin. And there is only one way of escape. And what a way of escape it is. It's not purgatory. 
It's not soul sleep. It's not reincarnation to become something else. It is eternal life with the Creator and the Redeemer of many sons. What a message. If we expect little of that message, we're thinking little of our God. There was a man, he's often known as the father of modern missions, William Carey, and he said this, we ought to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. What a rallying cry for the church. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's how the word is to be preached, prayed for, and expected, and it should be received in the same way. I admit that as you come to church tonight, you're hearing somebody that is very weak. You're hearing a mere man. You're hearing someone that's going to die someday. But as far as what I say is faithful to the Word of God, you're hearing the power of the Word of God. Do you receive the Word with power tonight? Are you expecting God to do great things in your life tonight in ways that you didn't think of when you came in? Do you expect God to help you in a prevailing sin, a temptation, or a need that you have? We should expect great things from the Lord, and He does these great things. If it needs to be preached that way, it needs to be received that way. Christ, who shed his blood and tasted death for all his children, has a great number around his throne, and he calls them still in today. It's still being added, and he uses still the same way. Now, we could ask ourselves, why does God bring many sons to glory? This was answering the question of why did Jesus taste death for many sons? And we said, it's fitting for God to bring many sons to glory, but why is it fitting for God to bring those sons to glory? This is the sum and substance of the whole matter. Because it's fitting for God to receive worship from his people. And so God has sent out his ministers to bring his word, announce the glorious gospel, so that there would be many more worshipers worshiping Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father is seeking worshipers. The gospel is preached, evangelism is done because there's not enough people worshiping God. He's seeking worshipers. Is God going to not have worshipers? If we will not expect him to have worshipers, how much more does he need us? Think about that. How much more does he need us? We need to expect these great things of God because God has ordained for many worshipers to be around those th- that throne, that those 24 elders are going to be just around this, the, the floor of glass, the sea of crystal, and the throne that's in the middle, and all around that massive throne room is an innumerable company of saints that have been washed with the blood of Christ. Have you been brought to glory? Are you numbered among the sons of God? That's a question that should come to us tonight. Are we there? There is only one way there, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance of sin. It's by being washed by the blood of the Lamb, being born again. How can you be born again? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. 
But if you are numbered among the elect, and I hope that you know where your calling and election is tonight. If you are numbered among the elect, how ought you to live? God says that we are to walk in the Spirit. Those that are born again of the Spirit must walk according to the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean anything that you and I want it to mean. It doesn't mean that however we say is walking in the Spirit is. God tells us exactly what it means to walk in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, he tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. As you examine yourself against those fruits of the Spirit, do you see them? If not, ask God to fill you with his Spirit. If you do see them, walk in the power of the Spirit. Walk with prayer for the Lord to pour out his Spirit. Walk with expectation that it will go out to many more. If You are not numbered among the sons of God tonight. The gospel has come to you, hasn't it? You have heard something of the power of God, that he's power to save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. So God brings his word tonight in this way, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you who are dead might live, that you who are numbered among the sons of Satan might be numbered tonight among the children of the Most High God. He's the one that defeated Satan. He's the one to serve. Why would you follow anymore someone who's defeated, being defeated, and will soon be cast into fire forever, and who wants you to be there? That's what Satan is, the defeated ruler of darkness, the defeated one who is going to be soon burning in hell. Why would you follow him anymore? The king is seated on his throne. Jesus Christ is raised on high. He set captivity captive. He's crushed that serpent's head. He's defeated him in death so that he holds the keys of death and of hell. Follow him, and all who have been washed by his blood will certainly be following him for all eternity. Jesus Christ tasted death for his children so that God might bring many sons to glory. This work of grace is altogether fitting for God, and it's promised and confirmed in the blood of Christ and proclaimed in the book of Hebrews let us go about the, into the world tonight and tomorrow with the power of God upon us and holding it in our hands in the very word of God. Let us expect the Lord to do great things, to convert sinners, to sanctify saints as he brings many sons from this life to glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we do thank you so much for your word. It is a powerful word, how weakly we often present it. Oh, Lord, it is a powerful gospel that the dead can have life, that the wicked can be made righteous, that the rebellious can be made faithful followers, that he who once was the drunkard on the streets becomes an elder in the kingdom, one who many look up to. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for thinking poorly of your word and your spirit, and that you would help us tonight to be increased in faith and to think great things of the great God who works wonderfully in bringing many sons to glory. We ask tonight that you would save now. We beseech you, O Lord. Blessed is Jesus, who has brought many to glory by tasting death for everyone. O Lord, we ask that you would help us to go forth in the power of our triune God, and that you would give us the great blessing of seeing that which you have promised come to pass, even 40, 80, 
and a hundredfold fruit from the proclamation of your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.